Welcome to Christchurch Manchester Sermon Podcast. CCM is one church that meets every Sunday in various locations across Manchester. For more information about who we are or about our Sunday meetings, please visit www.christchurchmanchester.com. This last week we've had the kids off school, so uh, my wife and I have been dividing up days, who's going to take annual leave, who's going to look after them, and on one of my days we watched a movie, we watched Inside Out. Has anyone ever seen Inside Out? Oh, it is brilliant. I'd never seen it before, uh, but it picks up the life of this young girl, and she's got all these like, little people in her head that represent her emotions. So one of them is joy, sadness, anger, fear, and they're all there. And as she goes through different events in life, these characters are interplaying in her mind. I thought, isn't that such a good way to think about our emotions, to think about what it's like as we feel different things, as we process life? It's just such a good picture of it. And it's actually the picture that we've used to name our current preaching series, which is Inside Out Worship, where we look at our emotions, where we look at the things that we feel and engage with. And how can we interact with those in a way that is godly? How do we handle the different feelings that we have in a way that reflects the truths of who God is and what God has done and who God has created us to be? So um, I'm going to pick up today the feelings of anxiety and worry anxiety and worry. So this is going to be a nice cheerful message, isn't it? And I hope it will be. I hope it will be really helpful as well. I think we probably colloquially know what it is. I think most of us have a sense of what I'm talking about. But let me just give you a definition that I came across this week about worry. So worry is a chain of thoughts and images, negatively emotion-laden and relatively uncontrollable, And it represents an attempt to engage in mental problem-solving on an issue whose outcome is uncertain, but contains the possibility of one or more negative outcomes. So it's basically trying to solve problems that you don't even have yet. It's, well, what if this happens? What would I do? And you play it over and over again in your head. I remember a few years ago, I got a text message from someone who was kind of senior to me in the place that I was working saying, uh, Tom, I want to meet you for a coffee tomorrow. No context to it. And this wasn't someone who would like socially ever ask me to do anything before. So I was like, this isn't a catch up. And the rest of that day was like, oh my goodness, there is definitely something. But I don't know what the something is. Well, maybe it's this thing. And if it's this thing, right, what do I say? Right, I haven't got my excuses lined up for that thing. Or it might not be that thing. It might be this thing. What am I going to see if it's this thing? And I spent all day running all different scenarios what the thing might be and what I would do in each eventuality. That's an example of worry. That's an example of anxiety. Now, there's a way of doing it that's probably quite helpful. Like if you're actually trying to anticipate and solve problems, that's fine. But when it starts to consume you, when it starts to occupy all of your thinking, and you start to have this kind of tense feeling around it, that's the feeling I'm talking about today. And it can be quite destructive. So Rich Viliodas, he's a pastor in New York. Uh, He says anger, control, manipulation, avoidance, sarcasm, and distraction can all be expressions of anxiety. I don't know if, uh, for yourself, any of those particularly uh, chime, yeah, when I'm feeling anxious, that's how I express it. Anxiety is a common thing. 
So I started thinking this week, okay, if we're going to talk about it, let's think about why do we feel this way? Why do we get anxious? And I came up with three big reasons, okay? So number one is uncertainty about the future. Because we don't know what's going to happen, do we? I mean, do any of us know what's going to happen tomorrow? So often the reason that we start to feel anxious is because we just have no clue what will happen to us. And that can be a scary thing. So people are often worried. Say you've been to a job interview. There can be that sense of, I'm a bit anxious about this. I don't know how it went. And you know it's a fork in the road for your life. It could be quite big consequences one way or the other. You just don't know. So it's like your mind is filling in the blanks. That's reason I came up with number one. Reason number two is because we've got wounds in the past, because stuff has happened to each of us at different stages of our life. And when we recognise situations that have hurt us before coming around again, it's like, oh, this could be really bad. So I realised a few years ago uh, that when I'd been much, much younger, I'd had one incident when I was a teenager where a group of people had done something and I wasn't included in it, and it had bothered me quite a lot. But a few years ago, I realised, oh, quite a lot of incidents in my life have been me trying to not allow that situation to happen again. That one thing that had happened had caused an anxiety that it would be repeated, that I'd feel that pain more times. So I was feeling quite tense, but oh, are people going to do this? Will I be included in it? That was quite a consuming thought for me because of what had happened in the past. And then thirdly, I think a big one is just concern over what other people think. Often uh, in our minds, so well, what does this person think of me? And if I do this, how will it land in the eyes of those people over there? I really respect them. I really want them to think well of me. So could I do that? Would, would that change things? People say we don't live in a shame culture. I think that's completely false. Shame is a huge part of how our culture works. So all of that, I think feeds into why for thousands of years people have worried and people have felt anxious. Let me just deepen it a bit. So we had a conference uh, about a month ago. We invited Rachel Gardner to come up. She did a couple of great sessions, but in one of them, she was talking about what she called the emerging generation. And she said this, the emerging generation today is called, in a lot of the literature, generation anxious. Uh, and she said the anxiety and worry that's been going on for centuries has been amplified, it's bigger than ever before. And there are actually graphs about this. There are graphs about kind of mental health incidents and breakdowns. You see a kind of tracking level for a long time. And then there's an uptick in recent times. And uh, she made the point that that uptick uh, is perfectly correlated to the launch of Instagram, uh, which make of that what you will. But uh, I think there is some truth in that. I think there's a number of reasons today why anxiety is bigger than ever, and social media has to be like one of them, doesn't it? Because what does it do? It means that sense of what will other people think of me. It means you're getting 24-7 constant feedback, what other people do think of you. You're getting a running scoreboard of how popular, how well-received you are. And if you know that everything is going to be graded against everybody else's stuff, doesn't that make you feel tense? Doesn't that make you feel, oh my goodness, how will this going, anything that might be potentially embarrassing, doesn't that get amplified when it's put out to the world? So I remember when I was a, a teenager, this was way 
pre-social media. But we do things like uh, that, that we're a bit awkward, that we're a bit embarrassed. I remember one time at a youth club with some of my mates. None of us had ever really done dancing to music before. But it's like, okay, well, let's just have a go at this. And um, I, I remember one time I tried it and made a bit of a fool of myself and got a bit of stick from the others for the rest of the night. And then some of the others tried it and got some stick from the rest of us. And that's just how it was. And then uh, no big deal was made of it. But I think, wow, now, if someone had just taken a little video of that, and that was on Instagram, and it wasn't just a few of my mates mocking me, but the whole of the school saw it, and I was getting rid of it, wouldn't I just be more afraid to even give it a go in the first place? Why would I do that? Um, another reason, contemporary, why people get anxious, I think helicopter parenting ties into it. So helicopter parenting is when you've got parents who won't give any space to their growing up kids and are hovering over them all the time like a helicopter. It's probably a reaction to a different generation of parents that were maybe more hands-off. But what it does is it says, look, there's always going to be a catastrophe in your life. There's always going to be things going wrong and you can't deal with it on your own. You need me here to pick up all the mess of what might happen to you. And so it creates this sense of, wow, I can't deal with life by myself. Think about the big trends going on in the world. Don't these create worry in people? Think about what we've been through with COVID. Think about the climate crisis we're living through. Think about uh, the war that's going on in Europe for the first time in decades, a war on that scale in our continent. Think about the cost of living crisis and what we hear about that. Now, you might be saying, Tom, there's always been crises. There's always been stuff like that. If you lived 2,000 years ago, weren't the Romans involved in a lot of wars? I would say, yes, they were, but for your average person, those things weren't getting in their space and in their mind. People were occupied locally, their own stuff and their community stuff. Our world has shrunk so much that it's like the big crises become on my shoulders, on your shoulders. Isn't that a weight that makes us worry? And with that is the 24-hour news cycle. So it's not just you pick up your newspaper once a day and learn about everything that's going wrong with the world. There are constant updates all the time, latest developments, so you can't get any space from it. And with that, there's a 24-hour commentary cycle, so there's always someone new saying something else about it. And then finally, we live in a time where support networks have massively dwindled because so many people no longer live in the place they grew up in, where their childhood friendships, where their family relationships are right there with them. That has a huge effect. Carol Markovich said in 2015, the American Psychological Association's annual stress in America survey found that people who have close family or friends to turn to in times of crises experience less stress. Now, that sounds obvious, but we live in a world where fewer people are living in that kind of situation. So that's what we're talking about today, anxiety and worry. I hope I've convinced you this is a big one that it's good to address. Well, what I'm going to do is look at two different Bible passages and see what they have to say about it. And then I'll suggest a few practices that might help us move forward. So the first one is Philippians chapter 4. Feel free to turn there if you have a Bible with you. Philippians 4, and it's verses 4 to 7 that I'm going to read. So it says this. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. 
and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. I wonder if you see in those verses the antidote to anxiety. And it's prayer, isn't it? Prayer as the antidote to anxiety. And as he introduces the topic of anxiety, he says, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. I think these ideas are connected. The Lord is at hand. Therefore, do not be anxious, but do pray. I think he's telling us not just to pray, but how we pray. Because when it comes to anxiety and worry, not all prayers are equal. Now, all prayers are heard by God, but not all prayers work the same way in combating our anxiety. And I think these verses give us some of the ingredients of prayer that helps with anxiety and worry. And to start with, it's just reflecting on this truth that the Lord is at hand. That means the presence of God is with us now, that he's not distant, that he's not far off, but the Lord is at hand. And so we can pray in a way that genuinely our soul meets Jesus. That's huge. You know, I find sometimes when I'm praying, particularly when I'm worried, what I will do is I'll start praying, I'll list all the things that I'm stressed about, and then I'll stop praying, and I'm still worried, and I'm still anxious. And I'm like, did that do anything? Maybe it did, because the prayers may well get answered, but in terms of how I'm feeling, it hasn't changed a lot. There are other times, though, where I remember, and I'm like, I'm going to press through. I'm going to not just start praying, list all the stuff I'm stressed about. I'm going to remember the Lord is at hand. So I'm going to try and engage with that. I'm going to try and pray in a way that really truly connects with him. And I find if I do that, if I actually do press through, it often leaves me in a very different place. So praying in a way that you can truly engage with his presence. And then he says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request be known. So thanksgiving also is one of the ingredients. Because as you're praying in a thanksgiving way, doesn't that change your perspective? Because isn't worry saying, okay, well, all these things might happen bad. And isn't thanksgiving saying, oh, wow, God has done so much good for me already. Doesn't that fuel the fire of hope that tomorrow might have something good to come if God's been so good in the past. When you look at what God's done, when you look at who God is, and you're constantly thanking him for it, that rewires your perspective to see things differently. Pray with thanksgiving, and then he says, make your request known. So it is good to bring the concerns. It is good to hand these things to God in prayer. Visualize yourself. I'm making this request known. So God, this is in your hands. I trust you with this thing, God. There's something about it. I don't need to fix this, and I don't need to have all the weight of this on me. I'm coming to God with this, because God is sovereign. Prayer as the antidote to anxiety. I think we see this model in the life of Jesus, you know. There was a time when everything was kicking off in Jesus' ministry. He, he was in Capernaum, and he was just growing in popularity. And people were coming from all the nearby towns, all the nearby villages, loads of people who were sick, and they were bringing them, saying, hey, would you heal this person? Would you heal this person? It was getting frantic. It was getting fast-paced. And then one morning, his disciples get up and look around, and it's like, there's so much to do. Where's Jesus? He's not here. He, where's he gone? And then they send people out looking for him. And then later on that day, he turns up and was like, well, 
wasn't it obvious? I, I was praying. I was getting time in the presence of my father. This fast-paced ministry situation. I don't know. I'm going to go and spend some time just with the father. I'm going to get his perspective. I'm going to get his heart. And then there was a complete change to the ministry from that. He said, no, it's not God's will that we stay here in Capernaum and build a big ministry here. We're going to go to the other towns and villages. That's why he came. But he wasn't allowing himself to get swept along by all the different concerns that were being brought to him. He stepped away. He got into the presence of the father in prayer. And that redirected him. I'd say this, when it comes to your prayer life, find a way that works for you to have your soul connect with God. For some people, a really good way of doing it is using the structure of the Lord's Prayer. It starts with our Father in heaven. Hallowed be your name. You're starting by engaging him in who he is. Then you go in big picture kingdom stuff. And only then are you going to give us this day our daily bread and the needs of the day. That's a really helpful thing for some people. I do this prayer wheel that I discovered about a year or so ago. Really helps me where there's just different types of prayer that I work my way through. So I start with praise and then after praise there's just a bit of silence and I read a psalm. I'll do a bit of confessing and once I've done all that, then I'm in a place. I'm kind of connecting with God by now. I feel like something's changed. My mind isn't just in the pressures of the day. Then I'll start praying for other people's needs, for the world, for my own needs and then end with some thanksgiving and listening prayer and back to praise at the end. It's a wheel that I work around. I found that so helpful to push through in prayer and not just to kind of go there and come out of it as I was before. Prayer of this kind can be transformative and not just transformative for the bit of time that you're praying it. It actually does something to you so you engage with the rest of life differently. There's a supernatural calmness to you because you've been in the presence of God. And I think that's what he's picking up in verse 7 when he says, and the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. There's a supernatural peace that can guard our hearts and minds. And that's in the context of anxiety. That's what he's talking about. And prayer is how we access that. So I said there'd be two passages. That's Philippians 4. We've got another antidote to anxiety in Matthew chapter 6. So if you'd like to turn there, please do. And I'll read verse 25 to 34. Therefore, I tell you, Do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin, yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God. And his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. For tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. 
So Philippians told us that prayer is the antidote to anxiety. I think Matthew's gospel here, Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, is telling us that truth is the antidote to anxiety. And specifically this truth, the future is in God's hands. Because if we're worried that the future is uncertain, then what better place is there for that future to be than in the hands of our almighty heavenly father who loves us, who is good and who is sovereign. And so there's an element of trust in God who holds the future. Because he's talking specifically about worry for provision, isn't he? For food, for drink, for clothing. Will I have enough tomorrow? Will I be all right when tomorrow comes? And the cure to that is knowing the truth about the nature of God as a good father who wants to provide for his children. By the way, theology is meant to be like this. If you think good theology is winning arguments on the internet, that's not how it works. Good theology is having truth about God speak to the real situations and worries of your heart and changing your perspective. Understanding this truth about God, that he's a good father, changes how we view the future. And the word for this really is faith, isn't it? Faith, applied knowledge about God. I remember a few years ago, I was listening to a sermon. Someone was preaching through James chapter 4. And they came to this bit of it, uh, James 4, 13 to 15, where it says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. And the person who was preaching on this said, um, Often when we talk about a verse like this, we say, yeah, yeah, there's a principle there. It's a symbolic thing. We just, it's about knowing that God owns the future. But he said, why not try it? Why not try actually saying it? And you don't need to use that exact formulation of words. But why not in the way you talk about the future? Just include the fact that you don't know that you've not got the future under control but God has. And so find a way to say things that expresses that. So I started trying to do that. Uh, and my goodness, my mindset shifted on how in control I needed to be. I don't need to know what will happen tomorrow if the Lord wills. That's a good thing, right? God's will is where we want to be. And Jesus tells us that futility of worry So worry is a completely futile thing. He's like, look, God already knows you need these things. You don't need to go over and over them in your head. I love Psalm 112, verse 7. Speaking of the righteous person, it says, he is not afraid of bad news. I'm so afraid of bad news so much of the time. I mean, what if this happens? What if someone says that? He is not afraid of bad news. His heart is firm, trusting in the Lord. That's why we can be not afraid of bad news. We can trust the Lord with the future. So I want to land by giving you some practices, because it's good to talk about this kind of in principle. What are some things we can actually do to help with our worry and anxiety? I've got seven quick thoughts. So firstly, non-anxious presence. This is a phrase that was coined by Milton Friedman. He was a child psychologist, and often he'd work with families And the the families he worked with would be chaotic families. There'd be all sorts of turmoil, all sorts of worry, all sorts of emotional pressure going on. And he said he would look for one person in the family who seemed to bring some kind of calm in the middle of anxiety. It might be one of the parents. It might be one of the kids even. But who is the non-anxious presence? And he says if if he finds that person, he's then got faith for the family as a whole that he can work from that starting point. 
And I think of Jesus as the ultimate non-anxious presence. Think of him in the boat when the storm's raging and all the disciples are panicked. Like, We're going to drown. And Jesus is asleep. And then he's like, hey, waves, calm down. Went back to sleep. And he's completely non-anxious when everybody else is in a bit of a flurry. I remember a couple of years ago, someone uh, called me and uh, th there was something with some kind of um, digital file storage stuff going wrong. Uh, but the person who called me was in a complete panic about it. And I caught their panic and I started being like, this is a major crisis, everything's going wrong. And was completely like all over the place. And then uh, I spoke to someone else and they're like, yeah, I'm sure this will be fine. We just need to do this and this. And I said, oh, right, yeah, yeah, we solved the problem. That's easy enough. But I noticed I wasn't the non-anxious presence there. I caught the anxiety and then it was my friend who was the non-anxious one and, and I try more deliberately now when someone's quite anxious or bringing a worry it's like do I need to catch this worry do I, okay can I be the non-anxious one here and helpful with this is the second thing on the list which is what we were talking about earlier contemplative prayer it's a good thing to try try prayer that's unhurried try prayer that bathes you in truth. Again, Rich Viotis, he, he says one of the chief benefits of contemplative prayer is the lowering of anxiety and anxious reactivity. I wonder if that's why we never see Jesus exhibiting anxious reactivity in the scriptures. Uh, number three is slowing the pace of life. There's stuff in the Bible quite deliberately about Sabbath, about festivals and there is a rhythm to life that is spelled out for the people of God. It includes slowing down at regular intervals. Now, we live in a culture that doesn't do slowing down in the same way, that everything's fast, that it's been switched on all the time. Even when you're not at work, you need to be switched on to work. If you don't answer the work email at nine o'clock at night, you get looked on funny in some industries. There can be this pressure to be always on. But slowing the pace and Sabbathing, doing... Festivals and breaks is a good and it's a biblical thing. Now, I understand that this is harder or easier for different people at different stages of life. I get that. But find a way that works for where you're at right now to take time and slow things down sometimes. LinkedIn is moving beyond yourself. Isaiah 58 verse 10 says, If you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. I want that to happen. I want my gloom to be as the noonday. I want my light to rise in the darkness. He says, well, I need to pour myself out then for the hungry. I need to satisfy the desire of the afflicted. So often when I'm caught up in a, in a worry moment, it's because I've turned in on myself. I'm thinking about me and how things affect me. When my focus goes out, it's right, how can I serve others that's a transformative thing. Number five, physical self-care. Understand that God's made you holistically. You are not just a soul. You are a soul and body together. Pope Francis was once asked by someone who kept falling asleep when they were praying, do you think I've got a spiritual problem? And he said, no, I think you've got a sleep problem. You need to get more sleep. Which I think there's wisdom in that. I think similar in the Bible, isn't it? We've just done the series on Elijah and Elisha. And you've got that moment that Elijah's in a major sulk. He's completely off on one, thinking like, woe is me, I'm the only one left. And God meets with him. But before God engages with the stuff he's actually worried about, the first things that the angel says are, right, firstly, get some sleep. Secondly, we're going to bring you some food. Let's get that sorted and then we can have a conversation about what's going on. 
Worry and anxiety are multifaceted things, but a lot of the causes are physical. Don't underestimate that. So that includes things like sleep patterns, eating patterns, exercise patterns. There's loads of wisdom out about it, but don't dismiss it and over-spiritualise problems. Sometimes the root causes are physical, and be ready to recognise that. Sixthly then, don't be afraid to talk. Don't be afraid to talk about what's worrying you. Near the start, I said one of the issues at the moment is the disconnection from support networks. People are more on their own than ever before. Well, isn't that exactly what the church is meant to be a solution for? Aren't we meant to be family to one another? Aren't we told to bear one another's burdens? So don't be afraid to talk. Don't carry the stuff you're going through on your own. And as I'm talking about talking, let me also say this. Don't be afraid of talking to a professional specialist if that's something you need. There's nothing unspiritual or ungodly about getting help from a professional when you need it. And then seventhly, let's come to the cross. Because on the cross is the antidote to all worry. That's the ultimate place to go. Because if we're anxious because we don't know the future. It's at the cross that our future was signed and sealed. It's at the cross that we know that we've got a great and glorious hope for all eternity. So we can have hope for the future because of the cross. And if anxiety comes because of the wounds of the past and the things that have happened to us that have left scars, isn't it at the cross that we find healing for all our wounds? And if it's about the approval of others... Isn't it at the cross where we get the ultimate approval of our Father in heaven through what Jesus has done? So look to the cross.